praying with us and keep those prayer requests in mind. I know many of you are on the prayer chain, or most of you, and what a good, uh, good way to be part of the fellowship, to lift those needs, and thankfully God hears us. Um, so again, the Tucson Pastors and Leaders Conference has ensnared me once again. I keep saying I'm going to go, but I have yet to make it, so I am here tonight, and I always sort of start with a few distractions or asides, if you'll bear with me. Um, I always like how the teaching usually leading up to the time that I teach has, has kind of offered some uh, ominous or comical moments. If you were, it's been a while since I've been up here, but a few years back, um, the teaching on the Sunday right before I was going to teach on Wednesday, Pastor Jim was in James 3 about... Let there, let there not be many teachers, for they will incur a stricter judgment. And so I thought, wow, thanks for you know, dropping that little bag of goodies on me. That was encouraging uh, to leading up to my teaching. Um, but I uh, tugged at my collar and gulped hard and got up here and made it through Wednesday night after that one. But if you've, uh, if you've been with us on Wednesday, last Wednesday we were in Proverbs 17. And so we ended on uh, Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool, if he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. And then he added the old adage, uh, better to keep silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And so I thought that was, that was another, you know, I was, it was kind of strange how the spotlight went over on me and he sort of glared at me like you're going to be up here next week, so remember that. Um, and believe me, if I could have thought of a way where I could have just stood up here and not said anything, I probably would have tried it. Um, but I don't think you would have thought that I was wise at that point if I stood up here for 45 minutes or an hour or whatever. Um, so anyway, I, I like to get those ominous warnings right before I leave. You know, don't say anything, and if you make a fool out of yourself, uh, good luck. But... Um, so the last time I was up here, it's actually been a couple years. I was in Isaiah chapter 6, and that's neither here nor there. Um, but one of the other things that was funny is I sort of prefaced my talk about saying how much I liked the pulpit, how I could lean on it. It sort of made the, the Word of God central. You know, it was like the central focal point. Um, and I, I talked about the tradition and the biblical significance of having the Word of God there, sort of the authority that we're considering. And um, so then I think it was about five minutes after I left the building, the pulpit was swept away and we got this table. So I'm not sure what that message was. Um, but anyway, for what it's worth, I thought, again, with a little irreverent humor, I thought if there's any other furniture or accoutrements that you're not fond of, we could try a little trick. Slip me a note. I'll talk about how much I like it. And then let's see if it's here in a week or two. I'm just... Just saying, um, but it is, it is sort of, so this is new for me, uh, and for the trepida trepidation of teaching, you don't really want something new, and it's, it's kind of a far way down here, really. Um, I was kind of wishing I was farsighted, but I do have notes, and I'm, I can bring them up, and you want me to stick to the script, and I will endeavor to do that. You don't want me to go extemporaneous on you, so I will try to do that, but that's uh, just, again, another aside to distract us. But either way, whatever the furniture, God's Word is central here, thankfully, and we are going to keep it central tonight, Lord willing. And really, every time I teach, in all seriousness, I, I do, one, realize how difficult of a job this is, and I think, wow, you know, you you got to say the right thing. you got to teach this correctly. You can't just go up there and wing it. And we are very blessed to have Pastor Jim, and we need to uh, continue to pray for him because it is a fearful place to stand up here and expound on the Word of God. <clears throat> It'd be easy to give a lot of opinions, which a lot of people do these days, sadly, and uh, tell stories, but we are blessed to get biblical teaching week in and week out, and so um, praise God for that, but let's pray for them. Well, let's keep praying for them. Uh, obviously, uh, they're having a good time, we pray, and we pray they come back, and Lord willing, they should be back uh, Jim on Sunday, and then next week we'll be back in Proverbs. So tonight we will be in John chapter 7. We won't do the whole chapter, uh, but we'll take a break from Proverbs. And I, we've been doing 1 John, obviously, so the same author. So I think there will be some tie in there. 
We're not going to do the, same, the, the whole chapter, but we will start in verse 1. If you guys have your Bible, you can take your Bible out or grab a church Bible. I don't know what the page is, but uh, get to John chapter 7, and that's where, where we will begin. But let me focus this once more, just say a quick prayer, and then we'll dive into the study. So, Father, we, uh, we do just bless your name. We do thank you for your word, Lord. It is life to us. Um, Lord, you were the word made life that dwelt among us, and we thank you for just the help that it gives. And we pray that you would help us to understand it clearly, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, instruct us, and uh, help us, Lord. And again, we just ask this, and we thank you for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 7, um, and I have called this Thou Shalt Judge. I figured that might provoke some thoughts and get us a little what? Get our attention a little bit. Um, if you have been doing the daily reading, uh, if you do the daily reading with the church on the Bible bookmark, uh, you would have read 1 Peter 4 last week where it instructs and cautions us in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That's not something that we hear a lot. You know, we've heard don't judge, we don't hear judge. And so I thought this verse sort of dovetailed with where we would be in John. But we don't hear about judgment. Um, but in reading through John, if you've, again, if you were doing the Bible reading, we, went, we read through the gospel last November, I think, plus or minus around there. And it really stood out to me the number of times that judging or judgment or judged was throughout the book. There was also a lot of references to eternal life, and that's we're not going to cover all those, although they kind of go hand in hand. But that was sort of challenging, especially in the climate of today and uh, what we usually hear. Um, and, you know, first off, even just reading the gospel, I think every time I read it, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but anytime you read one of the gospels, there's, there's a lot of times a sense where I go, man, am I even saved? I mean, this is, wow, I don't think I do, you know, do any of this well. Um, but this was another one that I, I just sort of was chewing on um, and considering, wow, it's, it talks a lot about judgment. And when we get to verse 24, um, it, Jesus says it specifically. And so we're going to consider what he means, what he's talking about, and, and in this context, um, what's sound judgment, what is righteous judgment that we'll see Jesus refer to, and, and what does that mean for us. But let's start, I'm going to just read John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1 through verse 24, and then we'll come back, we'll, t we'll have some discussion, and then we'll go through it, um, each of the verses, and, and see what the Lord has for us. But beginning in verse 1, And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. <clears throat> and having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching 
whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The multitude answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So that's where we're going to end. That's what we're going to cover tonight. And again, I highlight the last verse. Obviously, that's where the title came from. Jesus says, judge with righteous judgment. But we're going to look at at the whole uh, section in that context. Um, but but obviously one of the one of the famous verses that we know one of the maybe the only verse that a lot in the world know is judge not lest you be judged. But here we have Jesus saying, um, judge with righteous judgment. So what does that mean? What does that? How does that apply to us? Um, you know sometimes. We want to boil the faith down, and a lot of people have boiled it down that way. I mean, I think sloganeering, marketing, branding, that's a pretty common thing. If you have a brand, uh, it can be invaluable. Uh, you just have your brand out there, and people are drawn to it, and that's sort of the point of it, right, is uh, to be drawn to this brand. Uh, it gets your time, your attention, your affection, your money. And many have tried to say, well, let's, you know, let's sort of boil it down for the church, and that's one. It's sort of palatable, it's acceptable. Don't judge lest you be judged. But here comes uh, Jesus saying something that sounds different. So we're going to examine that. Uh, But I could, you know, I could stand up here and I thought about giving you some slogans or putting up logos or whatever, little catchphrases. And I would say probably collectively we could, we could, you know, come up with 99% accuracy. If I said, what, what is this? We, we would probably know it. And so, so there is power in that, and there's a tendency to want to do that, and yet um, God is so much bigger, right? I mean, he, we, we can't boil him down to that, uh, to just one phrase or just one concept or thought. And uh, I think Jesus highlights that tonight, and again, we'll, we'll touch it. Um, you know, the, the other one is just love, right? That's another one that, that people want to put on the church. And so we'll look at that. Well, is, is, is this unloving? Is this unloving for Jesus to say that? Because I thought it was, we just got to love and we just don't judge. Um, and, and those are, that's sort of the branding that a lot of people would want. And that's certainly sort of the cultural context that we're in. I mean, that's sort of what the world is, uh, is pretty good at. They, they like that. I mean, if you, if you talk to the world, don't judge man or don't judge dude. I think that makes it official if you put man or dude at the end. And, you know, and just love man or just love dude. Um, but again, it, it, it sort of begs the question, what does that mean? And, I, and, and we can justify those things. I mean, we could go and we could look at John 3.16 and say, well, God so loved the world and 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, that's the love chapter. If you do all these great things and you don't have love, then you're a you know, sounding gong and a tinkling cymbal or however that goes. And then Matthew 7, you know, we're not supposed to judge. So, so that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Sounds good. So what is Jesus saying, coming along saying, judge with righteous judgment? Well, first off, if we were going to try to explain it away... Um, we, we could probably, you know, do what a lot of people say. Well, that's a different word. That's a different word in the Greek. And so there's your distinction. When he's in Matthew, he's saying one thing. When he's in, in John, he's saying something else. Well, no. It's the same word. Um, the word judge, it's actually, the original word was krino, if I'm saying that right. K-R-I-N-O. I don't know if that's the transliteration. It's used over a hundred times in the New Testament. Um, Interestingly, in 88 times it's translated as judge, but also determine or condemn five times. To go to law, to call into question, to esteem. And Strong's sort of expounds on the definition this way. So it can, it can mean slightly different things in the context, but it's the same word. 
Uh, Strong's defines it as to distinguish, to decide mentally or judicially, to try, to conclude, to condemn, to damn, um, to esteem, to judge, among other words, um, and finally to think. So that doesn't help us. That doesn't solve our problem. It's the same word where he says don't judge and judge. It's the same word. Um, so we're either going to have to find it in the context or we're going to have to find it somewhere else. And so others might say, well, maybe this is sort of optional or this is, a, this is a, sort of a special thing like, well, if you're going to judge, make sure you judge with righteous judgment or some, somehow conditional. No, again, um, this is a verb used here in this verse, verse 24, and it's imperative. It's in the imperative sense, which basically means uh, it's crucial. It's an authoritative command, even, that it's vital. Uh, it's of vital importance. In other words, you have to do this. Uh, it's not optional like, well, you know, for those of you who do, this is what you need to do. No, this is, this is an imperative so maybe it's just an isolated verse. Maybe it's sort of an aberration. And again, the answer is no. Even in the broader context, you know, I mentioned John 3.16. And again, that's interesting. I think in, even in one of the recent memorial services, uh, Pastor Jim touched on uh, John 3.16 and the, the broader context of it. And we've almost really sloganeered that verse, haven't we? I mean, for God so loved the world, we sort of shorten it, for God so loved the world. And it's true, it's absolutely true, and it is a crown gem of a verse that, that we would all uh, love to and should commit to memory and even repeat to ourselves. I mean, I think that's, that's healthy, and it's, and it's an absolute truism. We might go further to the next verse, 317. That's where we start talking about judgment again. And, and, you know, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We, we sort of like that too. Um, although that still seems to sort of po possibly be at odds with the verse we're considering tonight. But then we get to John 318 through 321. And this is probably the less quoted section. Uh, we did talk about it again in one of the memorials recently. But Jesus says this, <clears throat> He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And these are the words of Christ. And so the context of God so loves the world is, guess what? He sent his son, and his son's not come to judge. You're judged already. You're, you're already under condemnation. And the judgment is, they love darkness rather than the light. The light's come into the world, but they... They love darkness. Um, you know, these are, again, we're sort of straying off our little branding here. We we're trying to get the don't judge and just love man. And Jesus concepts truth as if there is a truth. Light, darkness, evil, hate. Those are stark and strong words. And uh, not probably what the PR guys would have recommended if you're starting your faith, you know. Um, and then beyond that, though, the, the whole idea of don't judge and just love, we are going to get back to the verses and walk through those. Um, but uh, it's, it's really sloppy thinking, and it is a judgment of sorts. You know, and and you, you guys are, are probably aware of that, and you've probably heard that. You, know, you hear people say, well, don't judge me, man, or I feel like you're judging me, or you're just judging me, or whatever. And I want to say, are you sure about that judgment? Because... They are making a determined judgment that you are being judgmental. So the point is, we, we do judge. We have to judge. We have to decide. And even those who don't want to judge are, are judging. Um, and I, I like the way, but we don't often think about that. We sort of get stumped. Oh, yeah, we're not supposed to judge. Gosh, what do I even say? Um, but they're making a judgment. So the question is, what is the measuring line? By what do we judge things? What is righteous judgment? And that's what we'll get to. 
If you're familiar with Screw Tape Letters, I like this book. If you haven't read it, read it. Um, I, I, I think it's good. It, it's insightful in the way the enemy works. Um, and it, this came to mind in sort of thinking through these ideas, this, this sloganeering that we do or maybe the branding that we do. But for those of you who are not familiar with it, Screw Tape is a senior demon. He's instructing a, his, a younger demon on how to tempt people, keep them out of the church, keep them from becoming a Christian or from being effective, how to tempt believers. And so the confusing part is the enemy there, it's capitalized, that's referring to God because, of course, it's from the enemy's perspective, and so from his perspective, God is the enemy. But I'm just going to read this, and, and then we'll sort of talk about it. Screwtape says, this is in the first letter, <clears throat> it sounds as if you supposed that argument was the way to keep him, that's the per- person he's tempting, out of the enemy's clutches, that's God. That might have been so had he lived a few centuries earlier, but what with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. So the press has been bad for a long, long time. That's, it's not just a new thing. Um, your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think materialism is true. Make him think it is strong or stark or courageous, that it is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of stuff he cares about. The whole trouble about argument is that it moves the struggle onto the enemy's ground, that is, onto God's ground, do remember, you are there to fuddle him. Um, I like that. I know that's a long thing, so I don't know if you've had a, had a chance to digest it or not, but the enemy is fuddling the world, right? When, when, when God, when Jesus talks about righteous judgment, again, one of the definitions of it was think. Um, I, I like the picture there of saying he's got a dozen philosophies dancing around in his head, And instead of examining them and saying which one is true or measuring them up against what the truth actually is that we'll see, he's sort of just confused. And so instead of saying, instead of asking the question, what's true or false or good or bad, you can get captured by slogans, by jargon, as he called it. So pick the one that's strong, pick the one that's contemporary, pick the one that's new Um, as opposed to, again, asking the fundamental question, is it true? And I think that's part of what Jesus is calling here. you you got to decide what's true. you you have to. It's not optional. You're going to have to decide what's true. But there's the enemy trying to befuddle, um, and that's how he can keep us either ineffective or keep people away from the church altogether. And and it is seemingly harder and harder to engage people because even now these days... um, People don't want to talk about reason or logic, and there's hardly anything about a, a civil conversation. It's, um, you know, th- that, is, that is a cultural thing. That logic and reason, that's a cultural thing. We don't, we don't believe in that, which you eliminate that, and then you're left with just force, force of personality, force of persuasion, um, or some other jargon. Well, I don't know which one to pick. I guess I'll pick the one that's bold. Um, and so... Again, I think, uh, I think the enemy has used that, used uh, catchphrases. Um, you know, you, you'll hear it now, even when, when things are attacked. It, it may not be called false or false doctrine or false teaching. It's called outdated or antiquated or, oh, that was just cultural. Let's explain that away this way. Or it's backwards thinking or it's legalistic. Um, and again, People can be legalistic about doctrines, but doctrines themselves are not necessarily legalistic. The question is, is it true or is it not? Or how about this one? This is a big boogeyman these days. Organized religion. You can try to just sweep anything out of the way by just calling it organized religion. Whether that organized religion is teaching anything true or not is not the question. It sort of becomes this overarching don't even think about it. Just think of, if, if I just say the words organized religion, that's just so ominous that uh, I don't want to have anything do with, to do with it. Um, but, of course, there's, even the Bible, there's nothing, nothing that 
says anything wrong about religion. I know we've heard about religion versus relationship, and we do want to know him truly. Um, but James tells us pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. He uses the word religion. Care for widows and orphans and be, keep yourself unspotted from the world. So the fact that man has corrupted religion doesn't necessarily mean that all religion is bad or false. But again, we don't really think through these things. And the same thing with organization. Is organization bad? Is it inherently bad? And we don't stop to ask that. Well, that's organized religion. It's horrible. Well, why? You know, God is building his church. Christ is the head of the church. He's assembling the members. We're supposed to assemble together. That sounds like some organization to me. Again, there's no religious institution that's perfect, and a lot of them have been corrupted for sure. But, uh, but that sounds like the work of the serpent, doesn't it? <clears throat> And so, again, just in the preliminary stages, I think we find on so many levels that sloganeering and jargon and all this stuff is undermining this little trite phrase of, of don't judge and sort of supporting already what Jesus has said about instead judge with righteous judgment. Um, and, it, and it raises the question, um, again, what does that mean and, and what does that mean for us? What do we do? Um, I think I have one more quote. This is another quote from C.S. Lewis uh, that I liked, um, and it kind of goes along the same theme of, you know, sort of dismissing things as outdated without judging them properly. He, he used a term called chronological snobbery, uh, which is sort of a, anathema to learning, and he defined it as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. It's just a fancy way of saying we think we know everything. And that is uh, something that can hamstring us and, and hamstring the church. We, we look on the old stuff and say, well, you know, th that's discredited because it's old, because most people don't believe that anymore or whatever. And so, again, without thinking, it's sort of the same type of thing, accepting as Hey, this is the way everybody thinks. Don't judge, man. Just love, man. Uh, that's what everybody thinks. And so we just accept it without stopping to think about it, to consider it, um, and sort of arrogantly think, you know, technology's better, so we must have all the best ideas. Um, does that withstand biblical scrutiny? No, I don't think so. Um, I, I pulled this verse from Jeremiah 6.16, which I like. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But they say, we will not walk in it. I mean, again, I, I feel like that's could apply right now. You know, here, here's the way. We've known the way. We've known the way for a long time. Oh, no, we don't, we, we don't want to walk in that way. But again, God says, go back to the ancient paths. And I think of even Ecclesiastes 1.9. You know, everybody wants the newest, the latest. Um, and it says there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, everything that's been will be. There's not really any new ideas. It's repackaged old ideas that really attack the one true idea. Um, and again, I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Um, don't don't cherry-pick the word, the word and... Uh, don't go along with this sort of evolutionary thinking and just accepting. Well, that's, that's what it is. Instead, seek out the ancient paths that he set for us. And, I, and just kind of as an aside, I think I had heard, uh, you know, that's not to dismiss the new. I don't mean to, to say that, that nothing new is good or that God isn't doing anything new. I think uh, even if I'm correct, C.S. Lewis had a practice, though, of every new book he would read, he would read an old book, and they sort of judge him against each other. And I thought that was, that was probably a pretty good practice. But the, but the best practice, of course, is um, study the Word of God. Um, and um, I like what Alistair Begg said, too. If it's true, it isn't new. If it's new, it isn't true. And, uh, of course, in our culture, our consumer culture today, that's not widely accepted. It's thought if it's new, that's the best and that's the greatest. And course we are to think differently we are to think biblically so where does that bring us obviously we counter it with the plumb line which is the word of God um, you know some again even in the church will say uh, again we just love we don't need the doctrine we don't need the law 
And this sort of thinking that was referenced, uh, this chronological snobbery, again, you can see it even in prominent evangelical churches, and it seems to even be spreading and growing. Um, you know, they'll start with, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, sort of outdated, you know, sort of not. Uh, ge- actually, let's extend that to Genesis chapter 11. You know what? The whole Torah, we don't need the law anymore. You know, Jesus is the new covenant, and we, don't, we need to get rid of the Old Testament. And then, you know what? Paul, he wasn't really on par either. We, we, let's just stick with the gospel. Well, let's just stick with the words of Christ. And before you know it, it's, we don't even really need the Bible anymore. And that's sort of where that line of thinking goes um, because, again, we think we know everything and we're trying to fit it into the climate, the culture, the intellectual climate that's around there and thinking, you know, maybe if we feed the alligator, we'll get eaten last uh, and you will get eaten. Everything's going to be consumed. Uh, but, but this whole idea of being able to, you know, just dismiss the Old Testament or dismiss the law it's impossible. I mean, how often did, did Jesus quote the Old Testament? And, and Genesis, I think, more than any other book. I mean, the whole book from beginning to end speaks of Jesus. I like this quote, though, in the context of this idea of we're just going to love. This is another one from Alistair Begg uh, in his book where he's talking about the Ten Commandments and love and God's law. And he noted the danger of legalism, and that's a real thing. Um, and, we, and we need to stay away from that. But he said, love left to itself can so easily degenerate into sentimentalism. And I thought he described it, and I think he borrowed this from somebody else, that it's like the law and love are like two wings of a plane. You're not going to fly the plane without having both of them. The law points us to our need for Christ. Um, and then Christ, of course, is the answer. But that's really what we want. I mean, that's what the world wants is the sentimentalism. And that has led to the cultural chaos that we have in so many ways. The sentimentalism, just feelings. You know, well, who are you to say? I mean, if they feel that way, if they have this attraction and this desire, who are you to say, really? Um, and it, uh, it's love has sort of become a cudgel, if you will, that's pounding us into this moral relativism where you say, don't judge at all. There really is no truth. That's where the Bible sort of becomes hate speech and all that because, you know what? You, you don't have a right to tell anybody what the truth is because there is no truth, which, of course, is illogical. But um, as, it's as if truth is hate or truth is somehow the opposite of love. But we see Jesus is the perfect incarnation of both, the only one, perfect grace and truth, mercy and truth. And again, I think that's what he's getting at here. So... All of that, have I been sufficiently confusing? Are you all completely confused yet? Probably. Let's get back into the chapter and we will work through and see how this plays out and see the example that Christ gives us. So first, love is just being nice and it's not being offensive and that's the number one goal, right? Wrong. I think uh, we've had enough spoiler alerts on that. But let's look and see... Uh, again, we'll just start in verse 1, and I'll read a few verses at a time. We'll discuss them. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, and he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So obviously, right off the bat, we know he's done something. He must have offended somebody, and if Jesus is perfect love, uh, then he must have done something offensive, and we're going to find that out. Verse 2, now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea. Your disciples also may behold your works, what you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So first off, Jesus has brothers. Um, you know, there are some that teach that he was, didn't have any brothers. The Bible teaches that he did. Um, but they don't believe him. It even says, uh, verse 5, for even his brothers were, were not believing uh, in him. But he, they're, they're just saying, they're giving him some worldly advice. Look, no publicity is bad publicity. If you're trying to get this thing kick-started, you need to get up there. You need to get out in front of everybody. Uh, what, what are you doing hiding? You need to get uh, public. 
And of course, Jesus knew his mission and said, uh, it's not his time yet, so he doesn't go yet. Um, but his response is, is interesting and also tells us a lot. Jesus therefore said to them in responding to his brothers, my time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you. Again, they're not even believers. But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. So here's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but he's, he's not only offended, they hate him. And he's aware of this. And we know why, because he tells us. He says, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Again, that, that's probably not the way to... What, what's the saying? Win friends and you know, win your enemies. Make friends and win enemies. Um, by confronting them, the world that God loves, this is the same world, Jesus says, I testify their deeds are evil. That is problematic. Uh, being winsome is great, and, but when you say, hey, your deeds are evil, someone's going to hate you. Um, but it does sound very much like John chapter 3, verse 18 through 21 that we talked about before, where he said, if you don't believe in me, you're judged already. And he said... Uh, you know, people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So it's the same thing in John chapter 3 as he says here in John chapter 7. Um, so you hear some people say, you know, Jesus, he just, he had most, most all his rebukes for the, were for the religious leaders, for the Pharisees. Um, that's, again, he was really going after organized religion. There's the boogeyman again. Um, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't really say anything to the common people. He was just loving and so forth. Uh, and he was. He was absolutely loving and compassionate. We'll look at that. But, uh, but no, he doesn't say the religious leaders hate me. He doesn't say the Jews hate me or the Pharisees hate me. But he said the whole world hates me because I testify its deeds are evil. And then men, he says, people, they just love darkness because their deeds were evil. It's pretty comprehensive. It's as if he's saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, he didn't condemn people. He does. He goes out to seek the, the lost, to seek and to save the lost. He goes after the lost sheep. Um, but he also called a spade a spade. And no doubt he ruffled religious feathers, but he spoke the truth. So the truth is not the opposite of love. Again, Jesus is perfect love. So where does this hatred come from? We're going to have to turn back, and you can turn if you want, but I'll, I'll read it. He, he alludes to it in there. He says, you know, because I healed on the Sabbath, and that's, this is why you're doing all this? You've got to go back to chapter 5 to even find out where this incident took place. And I'll start in John 5, verse 5. And he says, this is at the uh, is this pool, of the pool of Bethesda. He says, And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. He said, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well, and he took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, so uh-oh, here's the problem. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said that to you? Take up your pallet and walk. But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. So, again, that was a couple chapters ago, and in between that time, where the Jews are seeking him at the Feast of Booths, there was a lot that had gone on. <clears throat> a lot more teaching from Jesus. He had fed the 5,000. He had walked on water, uh, again, much more teaching, and yet this stuck in their craw. I mean, they were still on this like a dog on a bone. You healed on the Sabbath, 
and so much so that they were seeking to kill him. Um, Jesus wasn't afraid. Uh, he, he does go up later, uh, but let's continue in these verses and find out what happens. So picking it up in verse 9, he says, Having said these things to them, we're back in chapter 7, verse 9, he stayed in Galilee. That's his brothers left. He waits around for a little bit because he wasn't ready to go publicly, and he certainly didn't want to go with his brothers and have them uh, try to direct or attract the attention, I guess. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. <clears throat> so, they go up, and again, there's sort of this mixed crowd here. You've got the Jews, you've got the leaders who are looking to kill him, and they're looking for him actively. He sort of sneaks in, but doesn't shy away from teaching. He, he comes up and he does start to speak, but in the meantime, the multitude's sort of wrestling. What do we do with Jesus? Is, some were saying, well, he's a good man. Some are saying, no, he's leading people astray. That's what he's doing. But it's interesting that they're all sort of mumbling or grumbling, as it says, but they don't want the Jews to hear. It's, it's almost as if they're waiting to see what's the official word. We don't want to sort of take a side until we see what side they take. They were taking their cues from the leaders, and they're afraid of them, but Jesus obviously is not. He goes up, and then he answers, and I think this is probably the key that helps unlock uh, the verse that, that we've focused on. Jesus answers them and he takes them back to the plumb line of the Word of God that we've talked about. So let's, let's pick it up. Well, we'll go ahead and read 14 and 15 uh, and, and then continue on. 14. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Again, not asking whether what he said is true or not. It's how did he learn all this? Where did he get this from? Jesus therefore answered them. So here's the answer. And he said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So this is interesting. First off, he sort of establishes the authority of the Word of God. He appeals to it, right? He appeals to the, to the law of Moses, but he says, check my teaching out. See if my teaching lines up with what God teaches, or if it's just what man teaches. Look at who is getting the glory, who is seeking the glory, um, Adam Clark, one of the commentators, he said it this way. Uh, he says, He speaks these words to draw the attention of the Jews from the teaching of man to the teaching of God. So again, he's, he's inviting them back. He's drawing them back saying, Here, if you want to examine me, here's, here's where you need to measure me by. Go see. Go, go look at the Word. And to judge rightly, you have to have the Word of God. Um, David Guzik said this in the part where my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. He says, Jesus was an eloquent, gifted teacher, but he was not self-taught. Jesus was God-taught. His authority was not from any man, but from his Father. And really, Jesus is sort of establishing his authority there. Jesus didn't claim to be self-taught. He claimed to be God-taught, practically inviting his listeners, this is the way Guzik says it, to examine his teachings according to the Scriptures. Again, drawing them back. Here, righteous judgment, here's how you judge righteously. Start with the Scripture. But the second point is he must obey the truth. I mean, he, he points out, Jesus points out, you've got the law, you're not even obeying it. Um, here's another thing that Guzik says, uh, quoting another commentator. There's a great spiritual principle behind the words. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. Spiritual understanding is not produced solely by learning facts or procedures, but rather it depends on obedience to known truth. I thought that was really good. And 
you know, there are certain things that you know through experience and you can, and even you can say you believe them, you can recite all of it. And until you walk in it and do it, you don't really know it. You're not really putting your faith in it or your trust in it. And I thought again of the teachers of the law here, they're appealing to this. They're mad because you're healing on the Sabbath and you know, that's a commandment. We're, we're to keep the Sabbath holy. And so they probably had this righteous anger in their own mind, probably not pure righteousness as we know. Um, and yet they were off. And I, and I also sort of think of, I think it was Mark Twain, the, the quote uh, that was attributed to him anyway. Um, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that concern me. It's the parts that I do understand that concern me. Um, and it's obey what you know. Even if you don't know the whole thing, obey what you know. Obey what you do understand. And Jesus was pointing out they're not obeying, but they, this is the source where they should be um, seeking. And then he really preaches at them and reasons with them from the Word of God, which is a good example, which is what, um, you know, we could go through countless examples in the New Testament or through preachers or really what preaching is, is taking the Word of God and expounding it and reasoning it with them. And he does that. He says, Moses gave you the law. It's not your law. It's God's law. Um, he says, you break the law. None of you keep it. Again, all have sinned. I mean, it's as if he's saying to them, again, if you're trying to, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, well, he's not reeling in the enemies. He's saying, you know what? You got the law, and guess what? You're all lawbreakers. You're all sinners. I mean, that, that probably wasn't um, drawing them in or uh, making them feel warm and cozy. Then he says, therefore, why are you seeking to kill me? These points... These points, here's the law, you're a lawbreaker. Why are you seeking to kill me? What have you done? Now that I've told you where to look, now that I've told you what you've done, uh, why are you seeking to kill me? What moral authority do you have? You're lawbreakers. What basis do you have? And basically says there's a judgment uh, that you're under. And so, um, again, righteous judgment. He, He cuts to the core, but the main point is that he takes him back to the Word of God. And again, PR agency did not authorize and approve that tactic or those words, but obviously Jesus was perfect in doing it. Um, So what is their response? Again, this could be ripped from the headlines of any political debate or discourse. The multitude answered, verse 20, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. So it's basically what you hear in political discourse, right? Not let me respond to your point and show you specifically why you're wrong or whatever. It's I'm going to call you names. You're demonic, you know. Oh, okay, that's, that makes it clear. Or you're crazy, you know. You're demonic or you're crazy. They don't respond to him with the word of God as he invites them to. Um, they, they don't get to the point of reasoning with him. But Jesus continues. He answered and said, I did one deed, and you all marvel. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Um, so he basically says, look, you're, you're rationalizing your behavior, um, and what have I done wrong? Show me in the Scriptures. You know, you've got Moses, you say this, and you do circumcision on the Sabbath, and the Bible doesn't prescribe that, and you allow that. So why not, why are you so upset about me healing on the Sabbath? Is there a verse? Come back, come back at me with a verse that says that's wrong, and of course they don't. Because there's not. So we get to the, to the crux here. Don't judge according to appearance. Don't judge basically um, with respect of persons. So as to please men or the scribes or the Pharisees. And I think of the multitude. You know, the multitude is sitting there waiting for their cue. They're sort of going back and forth, mumbling to each other. Well, which way? They're the upper-ups. Which way are they going to go? That's the way we're going to go. That's the way we're going to believe. And Jesus even tells them, don't judge according to appearance. Don't judge by titles. Um, and, um, you know, uh, truth is truth no matter who says it. A lie is a lie no matter who says it. 
we, we sort of got this hierarchical thing, and sometimes some people are more trustworthy than, than others. Um, but even if everybody believed the lie, it's not true. And so don't just look at appearance. Don't look at the robe they're wearing or the color they are or anything else to determine. Again, Jesus is calling them back to think biblically. Look at the scriptures and determine that way. Guzik said, I like this little quote, the iconic figure of justice has a blindfold for this reason. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of things where the blindfold is peaking, and it's in the justice system. And I could go and rabbit trail on a lot of that stuff where we're judging by a whole lot of other things besides just the individual and the claim and the merits of the claim. We've got to look at who the person is and their circumstances and da 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 and I won't go into all that, um, but the blindfold is supposed to be on. What is true and what is false? And Jesus is calling them to do that. And he says, so don't judge according to appearance, but do judge with righteous judgment. Give your sense and judgment of things according to the truth and the evidence of them. Practically, of course, this works its way out. I mean, God is a God of justice. Um, Moses, in Deuteronomy 1.17, he says somewhat, somewhat the same thing. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you shall bring, bring to me and, and hear it. And so practically, just there's going to be disputes among people. Practically, judge righteously, because it's God's judgment. And we should be just in that. Again, sort of not by appearances but by truth. But more broadly, even for all of us, we're not going to be in a position maybe to judge between disputes unless you have kids or grandkids. You know, then you're probably all right, and uh, you may never get to the, to the nut of the dispute, but maybe you can bring some peace. Uh, but most of us are not going to be called to mediate disputes like that, but we are going to be faced with decisions and having to think through decisions every single day, and we must judge and think and decide by the truth of the law and the Word of God. Um, and I think about, so going back to sort of this catchphrase, you know, don't, don't judge, just love. Uh, I think of even, and we didn't really go into this earlier, but 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, it does not boast, it's not self-seeking. Those are all very good things, but again, we need those, but sometimes we stop there. And if you get down to verse 6, um, in the NAS, NASB, it says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. In the KJV, the New King James, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. In the ESV, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And even more than that, the first and greatest commandment, when we're talking about what is love and how do we walk out this love, this biblical love, well, the first and greatest commandment, of course, is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then we can love our neighbor as ourself. So again, Jesus is calling us back to that standard, the whole standard, the whole counsel of God. And I think of that, um, the exalted position of the word in Psalm 19, and I think I may have this up here. The first part of the psalm talks about God as creator and his works and um, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. But then it, starting in verse 7, it talks about the law and the truth and his word um, and I think is really powerful for us. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. There's his judgments. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. I just thought that captured it. Why do we go back to these things? Because they give because the word gives us wisdom. It it guides us as we make these daily decisions and these daily judgments. It's pure and enlightens our eyes. And I like the picture of that even um, 
because it sounds very much like some of the verses that we looked at. Um, in John uh, chapter 319, light is coming to the world, but men have loved darkness. Um, if, they'd have, they, if they had loved him, they would have come into the light that their deeds would have been exposed. And I think about that concept again. I think this was C.S. Lewis as well, who says, I don't believe in Jesus and the Bible because uh, I see it. I believe it because by it I see everything else clearly. The Word of God enlightens our eyes. We don't actually see light, right? I mean, you can say, well, I see the light, but light allows us to see everything else. And that's the way the Word of God is. It enlightens our eyes. It allows us to see. It allows us to judge correctly. Um, but even some Bible teachers, and increasingly so, have compromised the Word of God. Back to this you know, love, which by love they mean sentimentalism and sort of eliminating the standard of the Word of God or a lot of the truth of the Word of God. That it's the, I'm okay with patient and kind, but n not rejoicing in iniquity and loving the truth, ah, I want to get a little squishy there. I want to sort of leave that out. And, and they're, they're everywhere, and they're increasing. And you'll hear them on Christian radio and Christian TV, and even they'll have little blurbs on K-Love, I'm sorry to say. They may not say those things on K-Love, um, it's positive and it's encouraging, but it may not, they may not always teach the full counsel. Um, and we've seen, we see the effects of it. You can look at the statistics about those who are leaving the church or not embracing uh, the gospel or the truth of God's word or embracing a lifestyle that God calls an abomination. You can look at the statistics. Um, you know, Generation Z, I, I mean, you sort of have this steady percentage of people in a certain abominable lifestyle for decades and then all of a sudden generation z it's like 10 times as much why have we not loved the truth have we not is there a, a you know maybe it's just a sign of the end times and that would be come soon lord jesus but maybe the church hasn't loved the truth or too many have said we just want a sentimentalism we just want kind of hug and and feeling um but it makes me think of of uh, Jesus when he said, you know, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it's better that you had a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. And if we're going to love our neighbors, we got to love all of our neighbors. And so we could love one neighbor and by giving them a hug and embracing maybe and tolerating and not loving the truth. Um, but is that going to cause somebody else to stumble? or somebody else to stumble because they go, well, that must be okay because they've sort of embraced it and they haven't said anything wrong. Are we causing somebody to stumble by not loving the truth? I don't know, but it's worth consideration. It's worth uh, righteous judgment. Um, and I do think even in, you know, we talked about Lot on Sunday morning a while back, and, and Lot's always a powerful um, picture because he was in the world. And you think of even Lot... Um, he, you know, he tolerated a lot of things. And, and his impact, we, le we learn he's righteous in the New Testament, like Pastor Jim said. I wouldn't have known that unless the Bible told me. But look at his impact. It was, it was zero. Um, so yes, we're to be in the world and not of the world. But 2 Corinthians also says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And they're both true. Come out from among them and be separate, God says. And Lot didn't do that. And he lost his wife and his girls and his family and he had zero impact nobody was saved um, was it just tolerance was it not a love of the truth um, again I don't know I think it's a it's a warning sign and that's something Jesus would speak to us when he says speak to all of us when he says don't judge according to appearance judge with righteous judgment apply the word of God to your every thought um, and your every action and search out the scriptures um, and many of you probably know that. Again, I'm, I'm aware you guys are Bible teachers. You're, you know, most of the people that are listening, you're familiar with the Bible. Um, but I, I think of the verse, if, you, if you're doing the Bible reading on the bookmark this morning, 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15, it says, Peter says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up 
by way of reminder. So even if you know all these things, even if you've come away and said, you know, that's great, uh, that really wasn't an issue for me, um, you know, I believe in the truth, I love the truth, uh, I'm going to judge things biblically, I know my Bible very well. Well, here's Peter saying, you know what, I'm going to remind you, I'm going to be ready to remind you. Um, and as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, as long as I'm in this tent, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. And even when I'm gone, he says in verse 15, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. The reason we need to fellowship and all the more as we see the day approaching is because truth is more and more being rejected. And it's easy to get sucked into that like Lot. And we need to be drawn together and reminded and encouraged and encourage one another. Just like Peter said, man, it's no trouble. I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you even when I'm gone. We have the book of First and Second Peter even to remind us. But I'm, I'm mindful that, you know, a, we, we may all be in different places. Again, some of you, this has been a refresher. Some of you have said, well, this is interesting. Um, some of you have been a little troubled. And you go, well, this talk of judgment, you know, I, I've kind of got a mercy gift. And, and I, you know, I just want to have compassion and love on people. And I would say, good, that's a godly gift, and use it, but use it in, in truth. Um, and um, Proverbs 27.6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, telling the truth may be the most loving thing that you'll ever do for a family member or a lost loved one or somebody else. Um, and so may that be a challenge. For others of you who may have said, yes, finally we get to judge. Now I have been waiting for this moment. You have misheard the entire message. Um, let the judgment start with us. Let, it, let us examine our hearts and say, am I loving? Am I loving the truth? Am I, let's go through 1 Corinthians 13. Am I patient? Am I kind? Or am I arrogant? And sometimes it sort of feels like that, doesn't it? That there's, that's the dichotomy. We've either got arrogance or acquiescence. And and it's like one extreme or the other. We either have to just pound it over here and we don't speak the truth in love or we just give up and say, whatever you want, just sentimentalism. And Jesus gives us the third way. Jesus gives us the only way to, uh, to love and to act in righteous judgment. And I'm wrapping this up. Believe me, I am. I will be done here pretty quick. I don't know how many of you saw um, Sabina movie. It was this last weekend. Voice of the Martyrs put it out. It was online. If you haven't seen it, I don't know if you can still see it there. It was a great movie, and I won't give away the story, but um, it's, suffice it to say it's about the Wormbrands who started Voice of the Martyrs, and Sabina was the wife, and uh, it just struck me, this powerful picture of grace and truth towards the end. There was a Romanian Nazi who had killed a lot of Jews, um, and the, a believer in that story basically risked his life to confront him and said, called him a murderer, basically, to his face. Not in so many words, but pretty much in so many words. Um, but then at the same time, embraced him and extended the forgiveness as, as he was a victim of his crimes and extended the forgiveness and love of God and, and literally embraced him. And I thought, that's it. That is grace and truth. That is righteous judgment. You call a spade a spade. He was a murderer. He needed to know that he'd broken the law but that there's grace and there's forgiveness. Um, and uh, again, I won't spoil the rest of it, but if you do get a chance to see it, I thought that was, uh, I thought that was good. Um, and so then finally, may, there may be some of you, uh, again, we're all sort of like the, um, the masses, the multitudes, and we're saying, is he good, is he bad? And all of us have to make a decision at some point, and maybe if you have never made that fundamental decision, who is Jesus and what am I going to do with him? Today's the day, because by not making righteous judgment about that, you are, in a sense, deciding. You have to decide, and by not doing anything, by not accepting him, you've decided, and he's called us to that. But uh, as far as I know, most of us here are believers, and so I would encourage us, um, make that choice daily, that daily choice to say, I'm going to go back up to the plumb line of God's word. I'm going to inquire of him. I am going to... Uh, not just judge things by appearance, not just what I think, not just what suits me best or what's most convenient. I'm not going to be the head of the church. Jesus is going to be the head of the church, and I'm going to judge 
righteously. So let me pray for us. We'll close in a final song and commit this to the Lord. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your words. We thank you for your boldness. We thank you for your truth. Um, Lord, you confront us. You confront us in so many ways, and we, we read your words, and we, we know we've come up short. Lord, for anyone who has lost, who has never committed their life to you, never surrendered to you, I pray that you would uh, humble them and you would reveal yourself to them and that they would make that choice and they would decide uh, to follow you and to surrender to you. For the rest of us, Lord, who, who know you, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and truth. We thank you that you've confronted us with your truth, both the necessity that we've all sinned, uh, but then the grace that you forgive us, that you've known sin in our lives from the beginning to the end, and you saved us anyway. But Lord, we do desire to follow closely, to follow more closely, especially in these days. Um, give us grace to seek you. Give us grace to know you, to judge righteously. Whatever decisions are coming our way, Lord, um, may we not judge by appearance, but may we make good and godly and God-honoring decisions. And may we be salt and light in this world. May we not be like Lot, who squandered it for whatever reason and, and lost his family and everything else. May we be those, again, who are salt and light and who take others with us. Give us opportunities um, to reach people, to love people truly, and to share your truth. And God, we, uh, we again just thank you for this evening. We pray for Pastor Jim and all the leaders and servants who are in Tucson, that you would bless them, that you would bring them back safely, and God, that you would go with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.